What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Goldman slashing their recession odds, taking it all the way down to just 15% for the next 12 months now. Fed Governor Waller almost jubilant on our air today about last week's economic reports. So are we in the sweet spot, or will September surprise us like it almost always does to the downside? We'll talk about it, plus the one trend our market guest is watching that could pose a threat not just to stocks, but also to the Fed's 2% inflation target. And it's not oil. He joins us with what it is and how he's positioning from here. And bailing on home insurance, whether they can't pay for it or simply won't as prices climb sky high. It's a growing trend among homeowners. I know Dom's one of them. But first, let's get to today's markets. And Dom, it's good to see you it's again. It's good to see you too. And I will say for the record, I do not self-insure my home. I pay <laughs> somebody I, I pay somebody else to do it because they're, they're the experts. Anyway, Kel, if you take a look at the markets overall, we have seen both sides of the unchanged line, at least with the NASDAQ composite. It's just ever so slightly in the green, 14,038. For the broader S&P 500, maybe a better measure of the overall market, it's been down. All day. We're down nine points right now, one quarter of 1%, 45.06. Even at the highs of the session, we were almost flat, down about one point at the high, down about 19 points at the low. So, again, a predominantly lower session, just fractionally so, with the Dow Industrials off one quarter of 1% as well, off 93 points, 34,743 at the last trade there. Kelly had mentioned about the oil prices. We are now, by the way, for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate at the highest level for oil prices that we've seen going all the way back to November of last year, on or about November 15th. That's where we stand at $87.23 for WTI crude. It's up nearly 2% right now. A lot of it has to do with this idea that Saudi Arabia, Middle East countries, at least Saudi Arabia specifically, looking to maintain some of those production cuts. So supply the issue right now. Demand may be a little bit more so, but we'll watch that dynamic with U.S. benchmark crude prices. Similar thing happening, by the way, with international benchmark Brent. And then if you're looking for one of the hot places in the market so far in 2023 that's cooling off in a fairly significant way today, it's the home building stocks. They are amongst the worst performers in the S&P 500 by a decent measure. Pulte Group is off 5.5%. Lennar down 5%. DR Horton down 5%. 4.5% declines for NVR. Even the home builders ETF is off 3.5% as well. Some concerns about mortgage rates, which did tick lower at the end of last week. Benchmark Treasury note yields are now ticking higher. What does that do to rates? The home building trade, Kelly, Some of them have had to discount or provide incentives to sell homes, those new construction projects. Do they have to keep doing that? What does it do to profit margins? A lot of things brewing right now in home builders. I'll send things back over to you. We're talking a lot today about trend reversals. I've got my eye on this one for sure. Dom, thanks very much. Dom Chu. Goldman Sachs starting off the shortened week with a bold call on the economy. Jan Hatzius, the bank's chief U.S. economist, is now placing the chance of recession in the next year at just 15 percent, down five points from their prior forecast. They also say the Fed won't raise rates this month and could be done hiking altogether. 
Now it comes as Fed Governor Christopher Waller told our Steve Leisman this morning it was, quote, a hell of a good week of data that'll buy the central bank some more time on policy decisions. And by, well, good data, he means mostly bad. And that brings us to today's opening exchange. Are we truly in a sweet spot where we can avoid recession despite a slowdown? Or are we celebrating prematurely and just entering the point at which we'll know the full effect of the Fed's rate hikes and all this bank turmoil? For more, let's bring in Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi with the aforementioned Steve Leesman, our chief economics correspondent. Welcome to both of you. Steve, let's start with Waller's comments. Obviously, he, he was saying more than that, but he, like many, were really cheering the data, fewer job openings and labor market moderation that we saw last week. Yeah, I mean, let's just put Waller in a little bit of context. You know, when he doesn't frown, it's like he's smiling, right? I mean, he's not the most jubilant uh, person to begin with, but and, and I wouldn't say he was ebullient about the data, but he was not that bad about it. He's a little bit more on the hawkish side, sounded a little bit more on the dove side, in no particular hurry, would hike again. I do want to make a remark about Goldman's call. It's not remarkable to me they went from 20 to 15. What's remarkable is they're doubling down on saying the chance of recession is less than average. Yeah, way okay? less than average. So in any given year, there's a one in four, one in five chance of a recession happening. I don't think Jan is really going crazy about going 2015. I think what he's saying to, to, to us in this call is that it's a less than average chance, which is pretty significant. I don't necessarily see the data that way. I don't feel like we're out of the woods on all the possibilities that could create a recession. But certainly we've come a long way in terms of defying the recession probabilities that have been and out there. And he's been correct about that, you know, to, to his credit, which is why, Mark, he's so worth listening to on this. There, you know, the, Some would say the biggest reason why we're holding in there is fiscal stimulus and fiscal spending. But Hatzius also says, number one, he thinks that the labor market's going to hold up. So income growth will support spending. And number two, and I thought this was interesting, he thought the Fed's rate hikes would be fully felt in the economy by early 2024, whereas others seem to be waiting for more of a lag. Well, I'm optimistic, Kelly. I, you know, I, I, I'm not as optimistic as Jan uh, uh, at 15 percent. You know, Steve, I think that's actually the average probability of recession. If you have a recession every six or seven years. So he's, I think he's saying, you know, kind of typical recession odds. I think that's a little bit optimistic, but I'm optimistic as well. I mean, I, I do think that uh, with inflation coming in as gracefully as it is, uh, in large part because that inflation is the result of the supply shocks created by the pandemic and Russian war, and as those shocks fade into the rearview mirror, we're getting inflation back in without any real damage to the labor market and to the broader economy. I think that's the most significant reason for optimism. And as that inflation comes in, you know, now wage growth is stronger than inflation. So we are seeing so-called real wage gains. People's purchasing power is improving. And that allows folks to continue to spend as long as the consumer hangs tough, you know, continues to do what they typically do. Uh, recession doesn't look likely. Hmm. Steve? So I'm reminded by um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, where he said it takes 10 or 11 or 12 screw ups to bring a plane down. Hmm. I think the same is true of the U.S. economy. Hmm. Um, you have to mess it up. You have to have a series of policy failures. Um, the other thing is, I like to say, charts don't happen. Stuff happens. So you put up a chart that shows, oh, when the uh, 210 yield goes like this, the economy goes into recession. It doesn't happen because the chart happened, because something happened along the way that creates a fundamental reality that creates. And the discussion with Waller this morning was interesting. He does not believe the 500 basis points of Fed hikes was the shock 
that will tip us into recession. And he talks about a couple of things. The first is that, um, first of all, he says rapid rate hikes, this is from a July speech he gave, um, are priced in very quickly. So he does not believe there are long lags yet, lags yet to come. That was the part of the thing you were talking about Policies, earlier. Sure. Yeah. People saying that those lags are here now. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens is that um, when we get into uh, uh, these refinancings of corporations in the next year or two, he says those are seen. Those are the known unknowns in the sense. It's the things that you don't see that we, you know, when we cover the totally bases, agree. we try to think about it. But there's a lot of things. Anytime you mention something as a possibility that could throw us into recession, then it's already in it's the market. It's almost yeah. off the list. It's something <laughs> that could, I, I that's know that's a little. I don't want to be too poly. I don't want to be too poly because there are certain things, there are certain hills that are you can see the hill, and it may be too high to climb. But yet, in this sense, the things that are on the table are the things, especially those that are a year or two out, are things that we can handle and deal with. The only thing, Mark, I would add to that, and the reason why I don't fully buy this idea that hikes are, are, are felt immediately, is that you look at lending rates for a lot of small and medium businesses. Businesses. You know, just so you're every day, they're not capital markets people. When we start talking about upwards of seven, eight, nine, ten percent, like the math just doesn't add up. You can't be borrowing at eight percent and having nominal GDP growing at four or five or wherever we are now and think you're in a sustainable situation. Yeah, I, I think there's more fallout to come, but the uh, degree of fallout is fading, right? I mean, the uh, uh, most significant effects of Fed rate tightening happened through the tightening of financial conditions, higher interest rates, lower stock prices, wider credit spreads in the bond market, corporate bond market. Those things uh, have largely been felt. I mean, maybe a little bit more to go here. We've seen this fill up in long-term rates, fixed mortgage rates are now back over 7%. Uh, so we will see some more damage. And you're right, you know, we will see effects flow through in terms of small business lending and, and corporate borrowing more generally. But the major effects of the Fed rate hikes, the most significant headwinds to the economy, are probably also in the rearview mirror here. I, I think they're starting to fade. They, the, the, the impact on the economy is becoming less significant as we move forward here. Last words, Steve? I, I, I want to just pick up on, on something Mark was saying. There are bad things that are going to happen. Right. And part of the idea of, of you have to have a lot of bad things happen at once is the dynamism of the U.S. economy that they need to stack up, I guess, below each other to create a negative number in there. So you want consumers going down and businesses falling and all these other things happening. And that stacks up to a negative. And one thing to think about today, oil prices cranking up above 80 or 90. Guess what? We have an economy the size actually bigger than Saudi Arabia inside the U.S. economy, pumping out more oil than they pump out. Mm. And so while we suffer, and some people will be suffering from these higher oil prices, maybe but inflation, we have this inflow into the U.S. economy offsetting it. Same thing, and, and, and the ability of the U.S. economy to adapt is one of the things I think people get wrong when they focus on a single negative. Watch for the stack negatives. You're right. To put it differently, Lollapalooza effect. That was a Charlie Munger one. A great speech on the same idea. It takes more than one thing to go wrong. It takes right. a lot of them all right. at the same time. All and at not the same the, time. Yeah, exactly. Just a quick note of caution, because, you know, we're, we're all pretty giddy here. I mean, when the economy is growing slowly, and when it is growing slowly, it is vulnerable to anything that can go wrong. And it doesn't take a whole lot of those little things that you were just talking about. So I do think oil at closing in on $90 a barrel on top of student loan uh, debt payments restarting on top of UAW strikes, you right. know, on top of the higher fixed mortgage rates. It, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I think we need to be cautious here because the economy still is quite vulnerable. And another reason why, key reason why 
the Fed should end its rate hikes. No more rate hikes, please, because yeah. the economy is going where it needs to go. You've been quite clear on that uh, for some time. Which you always, I, I'm already seeing a graphic, Steve. It's a Lollapalooza, and it looks like the show rundown, but instead of the bands, it has all of the different things. <laughs> right. right. Well, one of the things, that you would... and I have talked about this for a very long time, and I know we got to go. They're yelling in the back maybe at you, but is the counter-cyclical, the, the, the way that things have not been synchronous. Different parts of the exactly. economy have sunk down at different times. Mm-hmm. We probably went through, going through maybe a goods recession for a while, and then a real estate, but real estate looks like it's maybe on the way back right now. And that's what makes the state and local spending so significant. Contra 2008, that's a massive right. positive right now. Now you're continuing your own conversation, yeah. okay? You get to blame, <laughs> not me. Gentlemen, thanks. Steve Leisman, Mark Zandi, we do really appreciate it. Time now to reveal what my next guest says is the one key trend to watch that could derail the Fed's 2% inflation goals and the market's hopes for next year. And like I said, it's not oil, but it is all these labor battles. UPS, United, American Airlines, three major companies that have already seen at least a 10% yearly jump in wages. And my next guest only sees that emboldening other unions. It's not just a threat to the Fed, but there's also a negative correlation between wage gains and stock prices. For more, I'm joined by Mark Avalone, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Welcome, Mark. So you think there is this isn't just all show. I mean, there's there's a real effect on the economy here. Well, there is a real effect in the economy. It's a lag effect. It hasn't fully been impacted. But look at what the UAW is asking. And if we think that's going to end there, we're mistaken. It's going to embolden companies that may not even be unionized to have more. The Starbucks of the world are feeling pressure. And I'm old enough to remember the late 70s, early 80s, and what cost-push inflation does and how it makes things less competitive or at the least is a negative to stock prices. So ignoring 10% wage gains that are going to take effect in the future simply because wages have been declining in the past 12 months does not look at the entire picture. And a lot of people will say, and I've been sympathetic to this argument, Mark, that unions are a much smaller share of the population than they used to be um, and so forth. But you think this will have other workers looking. See, here's what I want. I'll I'll just play devil's advocate that this might be their last chance. If the labor market softens in the next six to 12 months, it won't matter if other workers would like the similar kind of pay raise. They may not have the bargaining power to get it. That is all true. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that everyone's going to get a 10% pay raise like United, like UPS, or like the UAW wants. But to think that there's not going to be pressure from organizers to get a little more for uh, inflation to remain a little stubborn and then um, government wages keeping up with inflation. We're still a little north of 4%. That is twice as much as the Fed's target. So yes, we've made a lot of progress, but just to think the trend line will continue uninterrupted, I think could be groupthink and a little bit of a short-term error. You and I have talked a lot about kind of tactical investing. So it sounds like that's making you maybe a little bit cautious on stocks more broadly. A, is that true? And B, what would you be doing tactically here? Well, I am more cautious because we like technology and who doesn't? And thankfully, we stayed there, but the valuations are rich. But then as asset allocators, we have to go to the value side. And yeah, you can trade in and out of some banks, which we have. But the reality is banks are under a lot of pressure. I had two due diligence meetings with bank CEOs, community bank, a regional bank, and they all said the pressure for deposits from the Internet is huge. Hmm. And I said, hey, the Internet's been around a while. Why now? And they both said... When you were paying zero, the online was not a competitor because you're not going to move for three quarters of a percent. Totally. But when you see a splashy four or five percent, 
there's a lot of money leaving. And then they have what's called internal disintermediation, which is existing deposits going to higher cost deposits. And both of those are bad for profits. So I think we're a little cautious on that value side because financials largest sector in the value trade. And so you and, and we see the carry under pressure again today. You exited that trade then because I know going back maybe a couple of months ago, you were looking to pick up some, you know, pick, pick something up there. Yes, and we did for these reasons. But again, to stay on the financial side, look to non-banks. There are companies like, like Schwab, which really got beaten down over the SVB fiasco. It has very little to do with an asset liability mismatch. Goldman Sachs is taking some managerial challenges head on. They don't have credit the credit risk that a traditional bank would have um, it, from commercial real estate or the need to gather low-cost deposits. So there are ways to stay in the financial space without, uh, without putting yourself at risk from these two big headwinds, which are rising cost of deposits and potential credit defaults. And then real quickly, just to go back to your point about wage pressures, I don't hear you drawing a straight line from that to sectors you would avoid. Some might say, I don't know, consumer staples or transports or something like that. Is that how you're thinking about it? Well, it, the shakeout already, look, FedEx is raising prices. They're a shipper. They're not who we mentioned. But there are companies in these sectors that can pass along the wage costs if the demand is strong enough, the economy is strong enough. So I don't think it takes down a specific industry, even in the airlines. Look, these CEOs are not stupid. They have planes that are full. They made a calculated decisions to pay their pilots more. The net effect is going to be more in the inflation numbers and what that causes Jerome Powell to have to think about what actions we take. And it's more of an overall market impact. All right, Mark, great to see you today. Thanks for your time. Good to be here. Mark Avalone, Potomac Wealth. Coming up, a tale of two halves for the market. We'll look at just how differently the second half is shaping up so far for all of these sectors compared with the first half of the year and whether to expect that trend to last. But first, there's a showdown shaping up across the pond. Apple and Microsoft again in the crosshairs of the EU. My next guest says Europe is becoming more like China than people realize. Jessica Lesson explains what it means for investors after the break. And let's get a quick check on markets, which just approached session lows. The Nasdaq gave up its gains. The Dow was positive for moments at the bell, but is now down 126 points. And the S&P is down about a third of 1%. Russell 2000, I mentioned the regional banks, but there you're seeing selling pressure of almost 2% to the downside. And the 10-year yield keeps popping up now at 426 at the last check. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. The headline just now crossing is that United Airlines has issued a nationwide ground stop due to a computer issue. Shares are down almost 4% at session lows. CNBC has reached out to United for comment. We'll bring you any updates as they come in. And we see other airlines trading lower in sympathy as well. Meantime, tomorrow, there's the airline board. Just so you know, by the way, American down 3.5%. Delta also down more than 3%. JetBlue and Southwest are outperforming. And tomorrow, we'll get the first list of tech services targeted by Europe's Digital Markets Act. Apple and Microsoft are expected to be among the hardest hit. Here now to explain the CNBC's Steve Kovac. And for more reaction, we're also joined by Jessica Lesson, editor-in-chief of The Information. Welcome to both of you. All right, Steve, first of all, what do we know? What's the latest? Yeah, let, let me explain this from the Apple front. So this is the Digital Markets Act passed a while ago, and we know it's going to go into enforcement next year. On the Apple front, uh, one of the things targeted here is iMessage that, you know, we're all addicted to iMessage. But what this tries to do is, you know, the green bubble problem, Kelly, when you text someone on Android and the green bubble pops up and and maybe you can't laugh at it and maybe your your picture doesn't go through or your emoji doesn't go through. This is designed to fix that, meaning if you reach certain thresholds or if Apple reaches certain thresholds, that means 45 million monthly users. That means seven and a half billion dollars in revenue uh, in the EU. That means uh, market cap is 75 million euros uh, globally, while Apple easily passes all those metrics. But what we're hearing from the FT is they're trying to fight against this because it would force them to make iMessage interoperable with other messaging platforms. Meaning if you, Kelly, you prefer to use WhatsApp on your Android phone, Mm -hmm. you would be able to text me iMessage, no problem. Now, how that works technically, I have no idea. But Apple is really pushing back on this in part because execs have even admitted this in a court case a couple years ago. iMessage is such a key lock-in factor for people. When you're thinking about getting a new phone, one of the reasons you're going to go from iPhone to iPhone instead of iPhone to Android is iMessage. So it behooves them to keep uh, it as locked in as possible. Anything that weakens it weakens their opportunity to sell you another iPhone down the line. Absolutely. Jessica, how should we think about this as it feels to me sometimes uh, another week, another EU headline against the U.S. tech giants? Or is this a preview of, you know, fairness that is overdue and, and coming to the U.S. market? It's a great question, Kelly. I mean, I think we need to be paying more attention to the Digital Markets Act and its impact um, across Silicon Valley and technology. You know, today the headlines around iMessage, obviously Meta is having to rethink its business model in Europe as well um, with some of the forthcoming registration around ads, looking at a paid version of Facebook and Instagram. Um, And, you know, this act could have implications even on the apps store itself, if you talk about Apple and sort of how how it operates on iPhones. So um, this is a big one. And I think it is, you know, the next step in Europe, um, really trying to kind of lock down its market and say to companies globally, you're going to have to operate um, in a different way to be here. And it's been a long road. We saw it start with kind of data sovereignty and asking these companies to keep um, their data on U.S. Uh, EU citizens in the EU. Um, but I do think the Markets Act is a big deal, and I think we're going to see a lot more headlines about how it's going to play out. Do you? Th- I know I'm being a little cheeky here, Jessica, but do you think the tech, U.S. tech giants would ever just say, fine, we're leaving the market? I mean, they would probably be leaving, what, 20 percent of revenues on the table. I don't know how big the EU marketplace is for them. It's a great question, Kelly. I mean, Threads didn't launch in the EU, right? Hmm. When we saw, you know, a meta product, not a 
not a core product, right? Not one that um, is driving a lot of revenue from the company. But but that was, you know, a recent move that shows that the tech platforms are thinking differently when it comes to Europe. Now, do I think they're going to write it off? No. Um, but I also think they're not going to just kind of play ball with every new regulation that comes down the line. So we'll see a lot of posturing. We'll see a lot of negotiating. But that is the question. And I would not be surprised if certain products um, launch differently in the EU where mm -hmm. we'll see this play out with AI. That's the other kind of hot zone of the battle right now. And I think, you know, as some of the companies like OpenAI have said, they'll say, they'll say, OK, we'll we'll leave that feature out for you guys. Interesting. Um, I think we'll see more of that. So, and Steve, I was uh, struck in Canada when they moved forward with, you don't have to tell me the nuances, something with Facebook. And so Facebook basically thing, said, yeah. okay, well then we're not going to offer whatever product it, that it was there. We're so, also used to it being whoever sets the most stringent standards set, sets the way this works for everybody. It's happened right. with California and the rest of the country for years on, on different things. Are we at the end of that road where companies might say no? And I look at the Microsoft Activision deal in the UK where they're People would joke, they're giving okay, them everything then they don't want. go to yeah. the UK. I mean, it's some point, but it's very techni technically difficult, I think, to execute. There's the, yes and no, <laughs> in, in short. Uh, we know the next iPhone, which is going to come out, uh, they're going to announce it next week. Apple executives have already all but said, we're going to switch that plug at the bottom of your phone to that USB connector. Oh, no. In part because of European regulation. So that's going to be a global so change. Are they switching it back? Or no, no, it's a, it's a new plug. If you've never uh, used the USB-C plug, it's on your computer, it's on a lot of Android phones. It's a more universal plug. Basically, the EU is forcing Apple to make that change. So that, that's going to be a global change. But to what Jessica was just saying, we're getting reports that there might be a different version of the App Store in EU just to comply with these regulations and also protect Apple's profits in the App Store, which is extremely high margin, extremely lucrative, here in the U.S. where there are no such regulations, it actually makes more sense for Apple financially to kind of split up their software to operate differently in these different regions. Wow. So it, it, I don't think it's going to be uh, the kind of knee-jerk re response that it once was. It sets us up for a good segue to China, Steve. Thank you. Yeah. China is now planning to launch a $40 billion state-backed fund to beef up its chip industry. And the move comes just days after Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo wrapped up her trip there, where she stood her ground on U.S. chip export controls. The semi's a little bit of a mixed bag in today's trading on that news. Jessica, you just came back from traveling to China on that trip with Secretary Raimondo. So what does this latest move by China tell you? It tells us what we know, which is they are very serious about building, you know, a domestic semi uh, industry uh, and to, to really advance the technology as far as they can as the U.S. cuts off the supply of the most advanced chips that they really need and want for AI. So um, this is not a new strategy. It was actually a strategy outlined many, many years ago and, and one the secretary brought up with me when I was uh, interviewing her in her motorcade. She said, you know, they told us that they were going to do this. We know that they're going to do this. We shouldn't be surprised they're doing it. Um, but we still have to look out for our interests. So, um, you know, I, I think th the feeling on the ground from talking to Chinese tech leaders was was pretty 50-50 whether China would be able to pull this off. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who say 
with the right talent and the right resources, um, China will get become a player in the most advanced chips. But there are plenty of people who say, you know, that they won't be and look at the history of the industry um, and say there's a reason that China is a player in some types of chips, but not, you know, the most cutting edge. So um, I was surprised that there was kind of that level of debate on the ground about it. But uh, the will is certainly there, and it, it will take years before we know if the results are. And maybe that makes this Reuters story all the more significant. In, in that teardown they did of Huawei's new phone, they show what they say is a breakthrough for one of China's chips, you know, uh, by SMIC. But so it seems as though people are truly looking at every, you know, new thing that comes along to try to figure out whether they're catching up or, or vaulting ahead. Absolutely. But I, I think you have to remember a couple of things. Technology keeps moving. So, you know, taking apart one device and copying that chip is actually, you know, the strategy China was playing decades ago to catch up with the U.S. in advanced semis, and it didn't work. So I think it's um, important to realize that this industry is moving quickly. Obviously, leaders like NVIDIA are moving quickly. Um, China will, of course, have more semi-manufacturing capacity, but when you look at that bleeding-edge technology that's powering the latest and the greatest, I think that's a little bit different. So, you know, time will tell, and it's a complicated industry. There are so many different steps. Of course, China controls some of the raw materials and is retaliated against the U.S. with right. their export controls. So um, it's clearly the battle to watch, Kelly, and, um, you know, yeah. I, I think it's the right, the right questions to be asking, but we won't know for a long time. Chips are the new data is the new oil, I think is how this is all evolving. Uh, but that's interesting like that even there, the tech leaders are, are, you know, split on whether they can can kind of leap leap into the into the lead, so to speak. Jessica, thanks for all your time today. It's great to see you again. You too. Thanks, Jessica Lesson with the information. And don't miss Commerce Secretary Raimondo on Mad Money tonight with Jim Cramer. That'll be at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, SoftBank's chip design firm Arm is seeking that $52 billion valuation. Where does that rank it among peers? Leslie Picker has all the details ahead. We're back after this with the Dow at Fresh Session Lows down 151. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Hawaii and Maui are being sued by the family of one of the wildfire victims there. The father of the victim is accusing the state and the county of Maui of gross negligence that led to the fires. The suit also names Hawaiian Electric and one of the island's major landowners. This is the first lawsuit stemming from the wildfires to be filed against the state. Spain's Football Federation fired its Women's World Cup winning coach. The move comes 10 days after FIFA suspended the Federation's president for kissing a player without her consent. The coach was one of the president's original supporters, but eventually grew more critical of his actions. Two school districts near Philadelphia closed campuses today as Pennsylvania police continue to search for a prisoner who escaped into the woods nearby. Authorities said killer Danello Cavalcante slipped out of custody last week, but has been spotted on surveillance cameras along nearby trails. The killer was just sentenced to life for stabbing his ex-girlfriend to death in front of her children. Police are offering a $10,000 reward for information 
that could lead to the individual's capture. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I will see you soon. Thank you very much, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the second half of the year is in full swing now, and we're starting to see some pretty big divergences in the market. We'll tell you the trends and takeaways next. And don't miss an exclusive interview with Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon, Thursday, 4.15, here on CNBC. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange and call it a tale of two halves, two months into the second half of the year and things are already markedly different from the first. The leaders of the first half were tech and consumer discretionary and they're now trailing other sectors. Meantime, energy after a mediocre first half is now leading the way. So should we expect this new trend to persist into year end or not? Let's ask Chris Senek. He's Wolf Research's chief investment strategist. Good to see you, Chris. Would you stick with the new trend or go back to the old one? Uh, hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think it's a mix of both is the short answer. Um, energy performance in the first half was very mediocre. And then the second half is a top performing sector. And it's our favorite sector because, as you saw in the news earlier today, uh, OPEC Plus is very committed to their cuts, uh, along with the Brazilian economy. Uh, and even in the face of China, uh, oil's held up relatively well. Um, so we're sticking with energy as our top pick into year end, which oddly enough is the best performing sector so far in this half. Right. So it's up 12 percent versus a 7 percent drop in the first half. But if I'm a if I'm a big hedge fund who's looking for a high, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to jump on that horse. Right. Who who do you think do you expect the investment world, broadly speaking, to remain kind of over indexed to mega cap tech? I think so. I mean, we've told investors in a note today to, to really stick with the barbell approach. You know, we think that. The market will go into two phases here in the back half of the year. First phase will be, uh, you know, slowdown is is good news because it means inflation is coming down. And in that environment, I think folks are going to want to continue to be overweight. Uh, the technology and consumer serves the sector. Uh, and I think as we go deep into the year, I think people will get a little bit more weary uh, into, into owning uh, tech. But uh, tech cont- continues to be the leader. Uh, so we like tech. We like energy. We like comm services on the other end. Uh, we'd be avoiding discretionary. We'd be avoiding um, some of the industrial stocks, which I think are going to have trouble with the uh, the weakness that seem seemingly is very persistent out of out of China, combined with extended valuations. So consumer discretionary, you're not as bullish on industrials. You're a little bit worried about the China, but you do think tech, which is only up one percent this half after a forty two percent jump in the first half. You think tech's going to be okay? I think tech will be okay. Tech is fighting against higher interest rates, right? And over the very near term, we think long-term interest rates push higher um, as the Bank of Japan moves away from zero interest rates. Uh, oil having upward pressure puts upward pressure on long-term break-even rates and, and interest rates. So tech, I don't think, is going to be the top performing sector but I think you still have to own it, um, but just not as much as perhaps as you owned early in the year. It's fighting against the economy because tech is very much traded with uh, the economy year to date, surprisingly. And I think over the near term, it's fighting against these higher rates. I think ultimately rates will be lower at year end than they are today, uh, but it's going to take several months, I think, to get there and, and, and perhaps even lower oil prices ultimately. Uh, two more questions and I have time for zero. So maybe I'll make it a, a comment. Maybe you can jump in. Number one, the underperformance of the home builders today is striking the XHB. I don't know what's going on with that all of a sudden. Uh, maybe it's interest rates. And then number two, consumer staples. I mean, this is an area it's quote unquote defensive, supposed to better blah, blah, blah. 
But in this environment, as Nancy Lazar and others have warned, could they lose pricing power um, and be one of the under, you know, they're they're uh, down three percent so far in the second half of this year. So would either of those home builder staples attract you here? Um, we're not chasing the home builders. I think it's all about interest rates there. So we'd be avoiding them because I think there's near term rates are moving higher. Uh, we do like staples. Staples offer defense. They're not as expensive as they used to be. There are pockets of staples that could lose pricing power because you can't have packaged food companies raising prices eight to 10 percent you know, a year and have it be a good thing. Uh, but there's other areas of staples that are reasonably attractive. Um, you know, the Mondelez, the Constellation Brands of the World, things of that nature that have sustainable demand that I think um, offer defense in a very choppy tape. All right. Uh, through. Maybe we'll give it 30 days. Check back in. I'd love to see how this evolves. Chris, thanks so much Absolutely. for your time. Appreciate it today. Thanks for having me. Chris appreciate Senek it. with Wolf Research, of course. Still ahead, SoftBank's chip design firm Arm is seeking up to a $52 billion valuation. Could be the biggest tech IPO of the year, but will it breathe new life into the IPO market or not? That's next. And as we head to break, check out shares of Zoom bucking today's market trend up four and a half percent. Got a bullish mention from Josh Brown last hour on the halftime report. And the company also just said it has introduced new AI functionality. We're back after this. Welcome back. Let's turn to the IPO market and SoftBank-backed ARM, revealing some new details about its upcoming public debut. Leslie Picker joins us here with the details. And remind me, do we have a date yet for this this IPO? So mid-next week, supposed okay. to price on the 13th and trade on the 14th. And yeah, brushed off my spreadsheet, did some IPO math. It's been some time. Business school days, yes. Business school, <laughs> well, and just we haven't had a big deal like this That's in so true. long. That's true. Um, but Arm is hitting the road, marketing its IPO to investors in what's likely to be the largest IPO in years. SoftBank, which took Arm private in 2016, is selling all 96 million shares and the offering and is asking investors for as much as $51 a piece. That implies an offering size of about $5 billion, of which 15% is already claimed by ARM's large tech customers. Think NVIDIA, Apple, and Google, which have indicated an interest in purchasing a stake at the IPO price. The IPO implies a fully diluted valuation, one that includes restricted stock at $55 billion. Now, that is below the $64 billion that ARM was reportedly valued at Last month, when SoftBank bought back the remaining quarter of the company it didn't already own from the Vision Fund. However, it implies a decent return from the $32 billion that Arm was valued at when SoftBank took it private seven years ago. But it's still relatively expensive when compared with earnings, which declined this year. Arm's non-diluted market cap at the high end of the range represents about 100 times trailing earnings for the fiscal year through March. That's about double the level of its peers' synopsis and cadence, Cal. Interesting. So here's the question. We're all talking about whether it kind of spurs open the IPO market. What if it slams the door shut? I yeah. mean, this IPO is heavily priced uh, at a, you know, if it doesn't go well, then I wonder about what happens for the other. You know, I thought Josh Brown did a great job laying out some of the, um, you know, the bear case, because this was a company that 10 years ago, when, back when it was Arm H, was the hottest thing on the block. That's why SoftBank took it public or took it private. Right. I, ever since the mobile phone market has matured, it's not that exciting. Okay, AI, whatever. But, you know, so if investors bulk at this and bulk at the pricing, what do you think the implications of that are? It's a really good question because there are a lot of risks here. They have a very large concentration to China. About a quarter of their revenue came from China, which is slowing. 
Um, they have a lot of competition, as you mentioned, in the, a very mature smartphone market, which is, uh, you know, kind of the end use case here. Um, and then not to mention, this is a company that at least reportedly was seeking a higher valuation, has paired that back. It scaled back their offering size as well um, because of that important part of the equation here. They have 28 banks on this deal. Wow. The 28 banks, <laughs> they want to see this do really well because they have other clients waiting and watching and making sure that this does go well before, you know, taking their own debut. Um, but so far, it's been a, a pretty muted, um, you know, first couple of weeks ever since they filed that F1. Or maybe we just need to segment it from the rest of the IP. It's just a different animal. It's coming public for a different reason. It's, you know, maybe trying to ride some of the AI, you know, hype right now. But maybe it's not that much of a tell for everybody else. I it, don't know what would be a better tell. It's sponsor-backed. It's, um, you know, over... 30 years old. It was founded in 1990. I think I have that math correct. Yeah. Um, so it's an <laughs> it's an older company. Um, it's sponsor backed. SoftBank is selling the entirety um, of this offering. Um, and so you're right. It's it's a mature company. No growth on the top line. Mm-hmm. Declines on the bottom line. Right. Um, and you've got a market that hasn't seen you know too much in the way of deal flow to really compare it to. So if it doesn't go well, I don't know if it slams the window shut necessarily because it does have some kind of idiosyncratic yeah. aspects to this situation. Um, but it certainly doesn't blow the window wide open. Yeah, well said. Leslie, thank you. I look forward to a busy midweek on that one. We appreciate it, Leslie Picker. Still ahead, the soaring cost of home insurance is spurring a trend of homeowners skipping it altogether. It's a provocative topic, and we are debating it next. Welcome back. More and more homeowners are abandoning home insurance because of skyrocketing costs. According to Bankrate, the national average for home insurance jumped 20 percent last year to more than $1,400 annually, and that's just for a $250,000 home. The jump in premiums is forcing some owners to forego insurance altogether, while others simply think it's a bad use of money and they'd rather invest that capital instead, a strategy that obviously comes with high risk. Here now to explain and react are Angie Newman, Portfolio Manager at UBS Private Wealth Management, and Karen Collins, Vice President for Property and Environmental at the American Property Casualty Insurance Association. Welcome to both of you. Angie, I'll just start with you. And, and um, are you ever giving people this advice? Or Absolutely not. I, I can't it's imagine not something it. that we lead with uh, by any means. But as you said before, it's provocative. It's a hot topic. It's real. It's happening. And so we, as financial advisors, we work from a planning perspective. We look at cash flow analysis, the best use of funds from an estate planning, a tax planning, investment planning. And we have to understand that the client really does understand so the kind people of risk are they're taking. And you're based in New Jersey, but I imagine you might have clients. You know. Yes, we so have lots of clients in Florida. We always think of this as, as mostly kind of a Florida or a coastal, coastal problem. Coastal region, for sure. Is it, so give us some scenarios. What are people coming to you with? What kinds of decisions are they making if, if this really is popping up where people are saying, oh, by the way, I, I'm not paying my home insurance Yeah, you. well, it started by them saying, listen, you know, a flood of investors came to the market during COVID, bought a home in a coastal region paid what they thought was a reasonable insurance amount, and then come a year later, their insurance company drops them. They're simply not doing that residential business in the coastal area. Mm. So then they're scrounging for an alternative. There are very few out there. And when they do finally find one, in some cases, the premiums are double or triple what they had expected. So they're coming to me saying, wait a second, isn't there something I can do that's a little bit different than that? 
again, this is not something that we recommend across the board. I would say there's a narrow demographic that meets the criteria that might, this might be appropriate for. But usually we say, you know, it's a home that obviously cannot have any debt against it, no mortgage. Huh. Usually it's not your primary residence. It's not something that you rent out. You don't want renters in and out of there, which could increase the odds of needing to have a claim. Um, and you take the cost of a rebuild, you take the cost of the contents, and you decide if that's money that you are willing to lose. Right. If you lose that money, is that going to make or break your lifestyle or your family's lifestyle? Karen, what does it mean for your industry if a high higher than normal percentage of people are simply foregoing insurance altogether? You know, the cost of home ownership we know is definitely including for insurance, and that is, is absolutely a strain on insurance affordability and availability, presenting a serious concern. We, we as insurance companies are advocating for solutions to really try and help address these increasing costs um, that families, individuals, and business owners are facing. This is the economic safety net that helps rebuild homes, neighborhoods, and communities, and it's really, truly vital that that safety net remains available and functioning. So what, what can they do? Okay, so let's take maybe not the example of someone who, who's choosing to go without it, but someone who says, I literally don't have three or four, whatever thousand dollars the number is a year, and um, so I'm going without. Are there any other options for them? We, we, we certainly don't want them to forego insurance if they do have a mortgage because they could obviously lose everything. If they choose not to purchase insurance, uh, it is possible that their lender may place insurance for them. It's referred to as lender-placed insurance, and it's generally a lot more expensive than the coverage that you might find available in the admitted insurance marketplace. So we do not recommend that. And there's generally less protection within that because it's designed to protect the structure, the, the, the lender's, obviously, investment. Instead, homeowners should really work with their insurance company or agent, including uh, looking into maybe the state's fair plan for, for coverage or take other solutions to maybe help reduce your premium costs, such as reducing your deduct deductible or maybe looking for other discounts that might help uh, reduce your premium itself. Angie, anything else you'd add for the people who might be dealing with where maybe it's more of a choice than a, you know, than a, a necessity um, that they think, I'll put my money in, in uh, the market. I uh, put in the NASDAQ triple Qs. I'm going to be up 40 percent. I can easily cover, you know, the cost if something happens. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would do the NASDAQ triple Qs, um, <laughs> but you're already taking a big risk on one side by saying I'm not going to buy the insurance. So if you're going to separate money out, put it in a separate account, invest it. Hmm. I would I would suggest that you stick to sort of a moderate portfolio. I mean, the fixed income market is offering some really nice returns. I had a guy say to me recently, listen, if I can get six to 7% for a year or two, mm -hmm. that's, that's four times what I would pay in insurance. Maybe I'll just do it for a year. Maybe I'll do it for two years. Maybe I will wait for other insurers to enter the market and perhaps drive the costs down. So I wouldn't take a whole lot of risk in the portfolio when, once you segregate out those assets. Yeah, that's um, a great point. It's fascinating. And we've seen other states where they lose all their insurance, maybe Louisiana, they lose all their insurance, eventually they start to come back in. And these are high, highly sought after clients and the ones you're talking about. Yes. Karen, Angie, thank you both. We'll have to leave it there. Karen Collins and Angie Newman, we appreciate your time today. Also wanna to mention the FAA is now lifting that brief nationwide ground stop for United Airlines. The shares are off their loans, but still down about two and a half percent today. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.